On December 6th of 1941, the day before the day that would live in infamy, about 115,000 people of Japanese ancestry were living along the Pacific coast of the United States, in California, Oregon, and Washington. They were farmers and hotel managers and laborers and housemaids, and some were lawyers and nurses and doctors and accountants too, although the professions were a lot tougher to break into for people who weren't white. About a third of these people had been born in Japan, and even though they'd made the voyage to the United States and had been living here for at least a couple of decades, they remained citizens of Japan. Not necessarily because they wanted to stay Japanese, at least some of them had really taken to life in the United States, and would have become citizens if the law had let them, but the law didn't let them. In those days, you could only apply to become a U.S. citizen if you were white or black. These Japanese immigrants called themselves Issei, which means first generation. Their children made up the other two-thirds of the population. They were the Nisei, or second generation. They were all U.S. citizens because their Issei mothers gave birth to them here. That's what the first sentence of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says. All persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. The immediate goal of those words from 1868 was to turn millions of formerly enslaved people of African ancestry into African-Americans, that is, American citizens. But the language was broader. It applied to everyone, all persons, which included Japanese-American kids, too. So that was Japanese America on December 6th. On December 7th, Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, and we were at war. Seventy-five days later, in the middle of February of 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order that gave the military carte blanche to pick up anybody and remove them from any military zone of its choosing. The military promptly said the whole Pacific coast was a military zone, from Blaine, Washington, up at the Canadian border, all the way south to San Isidro at the Mexican border. And it's set to the task of kicking people out, certain specific Italian aliens and German aliens as to whom the government thought it had some individualized suspicion. And along with them, every single one of the 115,000 people of Japanese ancestry along the coast. Every single one. It didn't matter where he'd been born. It didn't matter whether he had four Japanese grandparents or three or two, or even just one. The whole group was suspicious, and you couldn't tell which one of them was going to keep tending vegetables and which one of them was going to dynamite a bridge. That's how a nervous nation saw things at that moment. The Japanese race is an enemy race. That's how the commanding army general, John DeWitt, explained his decision to remove every person of Japanese ancestry. There was just no way to safely tell who was loyal and who wasn't, according to him. Now, none of these people had done anything wrong, but this didn't matter to General DeWitt. He put it this way in his official report. The very fact that no sabotage has taken place to date is a disturbing and confirming indication that such action will be taken. Did you get that? The very fact that no sabotage has taken place means that it will. George Orwell had nothing on General John DeWitt. So the government exiled them all, the farmers and the nurses and the dentists, 
the aliens and the citizens, the toddlers in orphanages, the judo teachers, the drum majors, the elderly Issei on canes or in hospital beds, the Nisei opening up vegetable stands or heading off to college. No criminal charges, no hearings, no chance to prove that this person's son was serving in the U.S. Army or that that person had won a speech competition for a stirring rendition of the Gettysburg Address. By May of 1942, they were gone, scapegoats for a nation's fears, locked up for years in little prison cities that the government wanted everyone to call assembly centers and relocation centers, but most people just called concentration camps. It took 40 years, but eventually the government would come around to admitting that it had all been a mistake. In the early 1980s, Congress appointed a special commission to look into what had happened. The commission dug into government archives, consulted with experts, interviewed witnesses, held hearings, and on careful scrutiny, the claim that military needs dictated the uprooting and imprisonment of Japanese Americans just didn't hold up. What the evidence revealed was a different story, that in a time of crisis, our nation's leaders had succumbed to hysteria and allowed their judgment to be corrupted by the racial schemas of their day. Schemas that cast an American with Japanese parents as foreign and different in a way that an American with German parents wasn't. Schemas that could let a leader describe a whole ethnic group as an enemy race in an official public document without the slightest hint of shame. My fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, in 1988, President Reagan issued a formal apology to the surviving inmates of the war's scapegoat cities, and the Treasury Department cut each one of them a check for $20,000. Nobody pretended that the losses of the Japanese-American community could even be measured in dollars, let alone that delivering just 20,000 of them 40 years late was more than a gesture, a token of atonement. Along with their check, every Japanese-American got a letter from the President acknowledging that we can never fully right the wrongs of the past, but we can take a clear stand for justice and recognize that serious injustices were done to Japanese Americans during World War II. This podcast takes that conclusion as a given. If what you're wanting is a show that walks you to that conclusion, that rehearses how and why the government arrived at the decision to uproot the Issei and Nisei of the West Coast, or how it defended that decision in the U.S. Supreme Court, you're not going to get that with Scapegoat Cities. There are excellent books by top scholars that cover those big ideas beautifully, and you can find a list of them at the podcast's website, scapegoatcities.org. What I want to do is take you beneath those big ideas, down to the windswept ground of the camps where 115,000 different people lived their 115,000 different lives under common conditions of racial confinement. When governments do unjust things to groups of people because of their race or their religion or the country they come from, it's really too easy to imagine that they all experience those things in the same way, but that's not how life works, and it's not how injustice works. The moments that Japanese Americans today call camp unfolded differently for everyone who spent time behind barbed wire. There won't be 115,000 episodes of Scapegoat Cities. There will be just eight or so, debuting just after Labor Day. Each one will tell a single story of a moment or an event in a single life. Each one will be based on real things that happen to real people, 
moments that I've uncovered in archives and interviews over the course of 20 years of research for my books and articles on Japanese-American imprisonment. Sometimes I'm going to populate the stories with characters I've created so that I can take a dry event, like, say, the construction of a barrack, and make a story out of it. Sometimes I might change a name here or there to protect a person's or a family's privacy, but all of these stories will be about true events. I don't pretend that this handful of stories can capture the diversity and richness of the experiences of Japanese Americans during World War II. I simply believe that when we insist, as we must insist, that something like the internment of Japanese Americans never happen again in the United States, we ought to try to know as deeply as we can what something like the internment of Japanese Americans actually felt like. I'm Eric Muller, and this is Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know, or better yet, let your friends and families know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you enjoy. Maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on the iTunes store or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Straddle my